This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Growing Up North, and the author is Morris Bradburn, and Morris joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Morris. Hi, Steve. How are you today? Great to have you with us. I want to read a few things you've written so everyone understands the overall premise of your book, this uh, memoir, if you will. You say, this story is about my childhood memories of growing up in northern Canada in the small, isolated communities of Oxford House and Norway House, Manitoba. The story tells about the lives of people who depended on the fur trade to support them economically and the methods used to resupply the trading post during the winter and summer months. Uh, just a wonderful time, right, Morris? A life in these small northern communities. It was a unique place to grow up. Oh, it was. Uh, you know, it. Uh, you knew everybody in the community, uh the uh, everybody knew one another and it was almost like the next door neighbor or even neighbors five miles from you were almost like family and uh, you could go there and be and feel secure in their homes and uh, knowing that the adults were always uh, watching over you uh, caring for you and even nurturing you at times as if it was you were one of their own children isolated so, from the outside world Isolated from the outside world, we uh, uh, got transportation, uh, one seaplane, which brought mail once, uh, initially it was once a month, and then it, uh, they, brought, uh, they uh, changed the schedule to once a week. So this plane came through once a week, and people could ride on the plane to the next community or to go for medical services uh, south in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So that was once a week that we saw the plane, and other than that, we did not see anybody else from the outside except maybe the missionaries that came through, uh, medical personnel that uh, visited us uh, once a year, usually over six months, and unless there was an emergency, uh, no one saw the outside world. In fact, uh, your pregnant mom, uh, to uh, give birth to you, had to go by canoe. That's right. Uh, that was the... Uh, the common way of traveling uh, was canoe. We traveled back and forth to uh, Norway House, Manitoba, which is the uh, another Hudson Bay post. There's a fort there, uh, Hudson Bay Fort, uh, that the uh, people from uh, Norway, the country of Norway, had built, and that's why they called uh, the community Norway House, which initially uh, the reserve there where the hospital was situated, situated was called uh, Rothville, and uh, it was named after... Uh, uh, the Hudson Bay uh, chief factor, whose name was uh, Mr. Ross. I don't recall his first name, but uh, that is the way most of these uh, places were named after uh, people that did something for the community or were well known in the area. And uh, Norway House was a supply depot after Oxford House. Uh, initially, Oxford House was the main supply depot for the 
in the south and the west uh, fur trading post. And uh, everything was hauled in from the Hudson Bay, the coast of Hudson Bay. And uh, there was a fort there called uh, York Factory. And from there, all freight was taken by canoe, canoes and uh, York boats into Oxford House and uh, Southern and uh, Western uh, trading posts. Well, thereafter, when the Oxford House uh, became a uh, 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 supply post, uh, Norway House was built. Uh, it, it was right on the north end of Lake Winnipeg. And uh, in this uh, area, that served the east, south, and western fur trading post. And it became the main uh, uh, supply depot. And there they built the fort. And the fort still exists today. Portions, portions of it can be seen, like the corner where the jail was, uh, the storage house, the powder magazines, uh, you know. Uh, and there's a, an old York boat uh, still uh, on the grounds there, and it, it's rotting, but the uh, fort itself is still there. The church that was uh, built by uh, Evans, the guy that, trans, that brought in the three syllabics, he... Uh, he built the initial church, which burnt down in 1932. It was rebuilt thereafter, and, and a picture of the original building is in the book. The uh, replacement building was uh, built without the mast attached to it. So uh, this was the uh, main hub of the Norway House area. Everybody then days went to church, and uh, the church was a very important part of everyone's life. And I talk about that in the at Oxford House. Uh, activities uh, in the book of uh, the church activities took place. My dad was the only uh, uh, person that uh, had an automobile, which was the it's like a big toboggan with a 40-horsepower Indian motorcycle engine on it and a three-speed transmission. And he would pull a big uh, toboggan behind that uh, with, of course, uh, uh, with the canvas side so that uh, people could cover up and uh, be protected from the cold winds because the temperatures then were about 35 up to 40 below in some nights and uh, we would haul people back and forth from the church to their homes because some of these people would walk five six miles to go to uh, the church which uh, you know uh, was the main active point in the community every sunday everybody was there and i still remember the there was very little room once you got into the church. It was a big building, but everybody was there. Everybody from the community would attend. And uh, it was a main center for information and uh, meeting new people. Uh, government workers came. And this is how you got to know people. It was all like one big family. And Cree was the only language spoken. That's right. Cree was the only language spoken. And uh, when the government uh, uh, officials came in, and, some, and also the a doctor would occasionally arrive. He would have an interpreter. And we had one policeman uh, that used to make his rounds there with his dog team. He traveled by dog team throughout the north. And I have a picture of him uh, in the book as well. And he would come uh, and make their patrols. Uh, usually once every six months was their scheduled uh, patrol. There was no crime in the north then. And so he just came for the purpose of bringing news. And of course, everybody would surround him and and uh, try to get as much information out of him as they could, because this was the uh, the news that would come from the north. And of course, uh, 
when the war was on, he would uh, also bring uh, updates uh, for the people in that area. And uh, he not only uh, uh, did police things, but he was also our our jury, our judge, <laughs> and our first aid person. He'd visit the trap lines and do first aid for the people that were uh, maybe having an infection. And uh, sometimes he, he was the one that uh, was authorized to call a plane in if the, there was an emergency medical-wise. And he uh, delivered babies. So uh, them days, one mountain in that whole area was very important uh, to everyone's uh, safety and uh, information from the outside world. He was everything that, uh, that you would need. Uh, nowadays, we have newspapers and radio, of course. But uh, he was one person that you could depend on for to get updated news uh, and also uh, who was in government now. And, uh, of course, them days we didn't uh, talk about parties. Uh, to see if you were in the States, for instance, a Democrat or a Republican, it didn't matter who it was. Uh, it was the name that was the most important. And uh, like Abraham Lincoln would have ran uh, that, they would have named Abraham Lincoln, not the party he was associated with but the man himself, and uh, that was important because the people that traveled a lot, that got to know, be known by the people, uh, were, uh, were uh, I guess, they established their importance by being establishing their trust with the people. These were people that uh, went by their word. If they give you their word, that was good enough. You know, it was the, the gospel truth that, and uh, they carried out their word the best way they could. And uh, this is what the people uh, wanted, and this is how they trusted their politicians back then. Now, you also talk about the fur trade in Canada. You give the details of how that uh, was carried on. That's correct. Uh, my dad was a fur trader, and the only competition he had was the, with the Hudson Bay Company and the Northwest Company. And now, he was an independent trapper. When... Uh, how he got into this was uh, he was the uh, an orphan. Now, that part I talk about in a book. Uh, to this day, I still do not know where he came from. I know that he was uh, adopted by a missionary uh, family up in the Northwest Territories area. As missionaries called it, Diniuses, and who raised them and raised many, many children along with him. And I just met, just recently met, Another lady, she was 96 years old, who told me that she was the sister of my father. And uh, I was so excited in, in meeting her. And uh, her name was, uh, you know, different from any northern uh, family. Uh, the name of Makinad, for instance. These people came from all walks of life, different nationalities, and were adopted by the Stinius family. And how he got to be a traitor was uh, each member, when they established themselves, whether they were a fur trader, a storekeeper, uh, a tradesman, would take on the responsibility to train the younger ones into the craftsmanship that they were involved in. And this is how my father got involved in that. He was taken un under the wings of one of the uh, fur traders and taught the art of fur trading. And uh, later on, he became a manager of a Fur, po uh, fur trade posted God's Lake, Manitoba, in Island Lake. And uh, once he was successful at that, he got he was sent to other posts 
to manage those and develop them a little further. It was then that the senior owners of that uh, uh, trading company uh, were at the age of retirement, uh, and they decided that they were going to fold the company because nobody was wanting to buy it. And the fur trading was slowing down then in the 50s. And uh, there they gave him the option of buying the post that he was managing. That was at Oxford House. It was then that he did that, and he further developed it by establishing a sawmill and manufactured uh, harnesses for dogs and uh, repaired uh, horse harnesses. And he made uh, manufactured toboggans, uh, sleighs that the trappers use in the spring, which is uh, the sleigh has two runners on it to keep it off above the slush and uh, on the ice. And uh, so he did all these things, and uh, this, I grew up watching all this, and I was also fascinated. I always thought that there was nothing that he couldn't do. You know, I watched him as he brought miners in. At that time, the miners drilled the holes for the anchors of the uh, the, uh, the, the, the horses used, uh, where a pulley would be attached to it to give uh, to pull up the logs out of the water for the sawmill. Uh, these uh, were drilled by hand, where two people would uh, use hammers and strike the bar while the third man was holding the bar by hand and turning it uh, one quarter a turn every time uh, uh, after uh, the bar was struck with these hammers. So uh, I was always amazed that they never missed the bar and hit the man. So these are just some of the memories of fur trading. And of course, I went out with the trappers uh, and their families and their kids. Like when you're visiting uh, during the daytime, they get you involved in all their activities, no matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a member of their family or just a neighbor, you're treated the same. So uh, when the one neighbor was teaching his son how to trap, he would take me along daily and he would have me set trap and uh, we'd go back and check them uh, the following day. So. Uh, this was very exciting for me to learn all that. And, and of course, I didn't uh, profit from any of that. Uh, the fur that I caught was, was theirs. So they, uh, that's how they made their living. And so the whole family was involved in the, in the trapping, uh, uh, you know, in, the, in that trade. It was not only just the father. The whole family, uh, including the mother, would go along. And they all took part in, the, in earning a, a living. We have about a minute left, Morris. Uh, tell us about, uh, just give us a glimpse into the sorrows of the parents who experienced separation from their children who had to go away to be educated. Oh, this was a, this was a terrible scene. Uh, most of the people that I lived around were uh, reserved people. They're what we call treaty. I also am a status Indian. But uh, the people that lived on the reserve itself, uh, my father was being a businessman, lived away from the reserve on uh, his own land. So uh, these people were the wards of the government. And when the government came in, they would take the children away from the parents. Uh, forcefully, at times, uh, the police would be there. And, but the parents had no choice. When it, you were six years old, you're going to be seven this year. Uh, a plane would land. They would just physically grab you, throw you in a plane, and you would be gone. And if the parents were there, they would be told later. But most parents uh, uh, obediently brought their children to the uh, post where the plane landed at the docks and uh, give up their children right then and there. Some of these children may never return home again. Some would uh, 
are buried we uh, somewhere in Canada. We don't know where, but they never the parents were never informed of where they were. And most of them returned home. Some returned with an education and were appreciated the education they got. Of course, some were abused. Uh, many have bad memories. Uh, and uh, but anyway, uh, I think uh, of overall it was a failure because most of them were taken out of the culture to 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 kill the Indian and the child, as it was called, uh, to try to change these Indians into farmers, like European style of living. And uh, it was a drastic change for them, and uh, to speak the language thereafter, once they were taken, you, they could not speak their native language. They were punished uh, in every way uh, once if they were caught speaking their own language. So they had to learn the English language and only communicate by that. The title of the book is Growing Up North, and the author, Morris Bradburn. Morris, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can uh, order through the bookstores uh, in Canada, Chapters, and in, uh, in the United States, you can order the book through the Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon.com, just about any bookstores, and you can also come on my uh, website, it's morrisbradburn.com. And uh, there you can uh, get uh, information on how to get your book. Thank you, Morris. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. And thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. You simply the best. Than Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. 
The title of the book, Guardians of the Gate. And the author is Vincent N. Perillo. And Vince joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Vince. Good morning. Fascinating historical view of Ellis Island. Uh, fiction, but based on uh, historical fact. Uh, everyone's go- really going to enjoy this. You say this, the novel reveals fascinating but little-known facts about dramatic events at Ellis Island in the 1890s and the early 1900s and tells of the experiences of arriving immigrants and of the doctors, nurses, and government officials who worked there. Beneath the everyday happenings and challenges lie the conflicts between personal facades and private desires as a compelling love story unfolds. There has to be a love story, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's fact as well. Of course, that's human relationships. Why this fascination with Ellis Island, uh, the motivation to publish this book, as well as give us some of your professional background? 20 years ago, this is the germ of the book. 20 years ago, I wrote and produced a documentary for PBS called Ellis Island Gateway to America. Um, that started my thinking about this, but also in, I'm a college professor of sociology, and I teach a course on immigration, and as a class project, I have my students compile oral histories, hopefully of their own family members, but of anyone. And uh, back to 20 years ago when this all started, I was still able to get stories about Ellis Island. And I collected these, and I just found them fascinating, uh, real human interest stories about the drive and determination of people to give up on old dreams and old traditions to pursue new dreams and new traditions. So it, it just inspired me so much. And I like new challenges, and I thought instead of just writing nonfiction books and textbooks, which I have done, I'd try to use my imagination and capture a story that deals with immigration, deals with the human spirit, and deals with the trials and tribulations of real life. We hear a lot about illegal immigrants today in the news. Were these folks back then, uh, as far as their human nature, their their dreams, were, were they any different than today? I don't think so. I, I think people are people no matter what country or what time period we talk about. Uh, there's something that pushes them out of their own country, whether it's poverty or persecution, repression, whatever. And there's something that pulls them here, and it's, it's the American dream. It's the promise of a better life, of opportunity, of freedom. And uh, whether we talk about the legals or the illegals, we talk about back then, we talk about now. These are the same kinds of people following those same dreams. What was Ellis Island before it became this immigration station? Well, Ellis Island has a fascinating history. In, in the beginning, it was just a little mud flat. It was so worthless a piece of land that even the Indians living in the area ignored it. Uh, but eventually, the, the Dutch uh, used it as a place to have Sunday picnics. Back in the days of New Amsterdam, there was a, a rich oyster beds just offshore. Later, when the English took over New York, it was a place where they would hang pirates and, and leave them there as a warning to other would-be people. The only reason Ellis Island became a immigrant station was because first nobody else wanted the island and secondly nobody else wanted the immigrant station in any other locale 
So the government doubled the size of it and um, built the station. You wanted to capture that American spirit. Yes. Yes. Uh, there, there's lots of stories that have been told in movies and books written about immigration. Uh, and, the, and there's many family histories that are filled with the stories of people who made the sacrifices to come here to make a better life, if not for themselves, at least for their children. And the Ellis Island is that symbol. Ellis Island is one of our few national shrines, I think. Uh, Independence Hall quickly might be another, perhaps the Alamo. But Ellis Island signifies that drive, that dream, that determination. Um, and uh, I wanted to somehow capture that in my story. And not only capture these immigrants with these great dreams of improving their lives by coming to America, but also the people that interacted with them and that whole human drama. Well, this is the key, I think, uh, uh, to the essence of the book. Uh, Ellis Island was the first American soil that these immigrants stepped upon. And the people who worked at Ellis Island were the very first Americans that they, they met. Uh, they were nervous. They, they worried about getting accepted because not everybody did. And their fate, their, their whole future was determined by the doctors and by the inspectors and the people who were there. And who were these people? Who, who were these people working there? The story's been told of the immigrants, but what about these people that had such incredible power in their hands? Some of them were altruistic, noble, dedicated people. Some were scoundrels. Some just, it was, it was just a job, and they, they went there. But I wanted to give the readers some insight into the everyday happenings at Ellis Island through the eyes of these people. Introducing, then, Matt Stafford, an idealistic hospital surgeon. So tell us about Matt. Well, Matt is a, is a young man who has some inner restlessness that he can't quite put his finger on. He's got a great career. He's, he's working at Presbyterian Hospital as a surgeon, but he, he, he's longing for something else. And he has a chance encounter uh, with the commissioner of Ellis Island and uh, is intrigued and decides he'll take a temporary leave from his work to see this diversity of uh, humanity that is uh, coming into America at that time. And so that begins his adventure on the island. And, of course, he meets Nurse Nicole. Yes, he does. Tell us uh, about her. Nicole is, is uh, a, a good person. Uh, she is one that is a person who is very, very beautiful and extremely competent and intelligent. Um, she wears a mask of aloofness to kind of ward off unwanted attention. But beneath her is a very passionate nature, and she's intrigued by this young doctor who has come to the island, uh, and she wants to know more about him. And ultimately what happens is the two of them become involved. Um, and it's, I, I like the line of Shakespeare about the course of true love never runs smooth, and uh, what I wanted to do was to not just have some idealistic, happily ever after type of story necessarily as much as I wanted to show how sometimes life isn't always what you'd like it to be and you go through various difficulties and do you, do you stay the course? Do you try to make it work or do you give up? And that's part of what this story is about. 
And you as a sociologist and, I might add, a Fulbright scholar, author of more than three dozen college books and editions, uh, you're fascinated with that private self and public self-image. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's sort of one of the hallmarks, I guess, of my sociological interests. I mean, we, we are multiple people. Uh, we're not hypocrites. Uh, it, it's not that we're phonies. It's just that in different aspects of life, we reveal only part of ourselves, a certain persona. We, we do what we call impression management. Um, but we keep our real selves either to ourselves or only to someone or a few handful of people that we're extremely close to and we trust to expose our vulnerabilities. So sometimes this social mask that we wear um, is, is one of, of goodness and perhaps evil lurks underneath. Or perhaps uh, the social mask is one of confidence, but underneath is, is one of insecurity. Or perhaps the mask we wear is, is one that we're happy and content with all that we survey and what people see of us, but inside there is this gnawing discontent that we don't quite know how to deal with. Um, there are many aspects to this, and I try to bring out in the book uh, a number of different personalities, both the major and minor characters, to, to kind of un- unveil, I guess, that, that kind of inner conflict that sometimes we face. Let's also introduce Assistant Commissioner Ed McSweeney. Yeah, Ed McSweeney is, is a real person. Uh, this is a historical novel, so everything that is in the book is based on actual events, but my, using my imagination for the, for the dialogue. Ed McSweeney is a young man. He was a school dropout, but he, he actually uh, became very active in the labor union movement, uh, founded a, a, a union, and uh, he, was, he was its president. He gets very involved in, in politics, and as is often the case, is rewarded for his uh, efforts with uh, with an appointment at Ellis Island as the assistant commissioner and he is basically responsible for the day-to-day operations um, he has he's he's an interesting mixed character too he he wants to do what he can for the immigrants but he sees nothing wrong in lining his pocket at the same time um, with uh, additional income from the concessionaires or the steamship companies or whatever. He doesn't want to exploit the immigrants as some others do, but he sees nothing wrong in some under-the-table uh, you know, addition to his income. So we do have some scandals and exploitation. Uh, you talk about uh, another employee that seems to be uh, all that person's focus. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't want to name him here because I'd like that to get unveiled. Okay. He's, he's the one that wears the mask of uh, being this wonderful person. Uh, but the reality is there was incredible exploitation that occurred at Ellis Island, particularly in the 1890s and early 1900s when this book takes place. And so he will brutally exploit women. Uh, he'll find all kinds of ways to... Uh, uh, get money from various nefarious means. Um, there, there are others on the island, too, who are doing similar things, all kinds of graft and corruption. There are actually even um, murders and, and rapes that uh, did occur, and uh, that gets involved in some of the story of these scoundrels who work there. And thus the uh, parallels to today's illegal immigration news. 
Absolutely. I mean, there there are always people willing to take advantage of others, unfortunately, and oftentimes uh, the, the powerless can't do anything about it except try to get by as best they can. So whether we're talking about coyotes uh, leading immigrants into this country, whether we're talking about sweatshop owners or we're t- talking about other means of, uh, you know, the, the slave rings, uh, human trafficking, uh, there, there are many ways in which we can find people who, when they are unmasked, is often a surprise to others. I had no idea that they would be like this or whatever. And, and so, unfortunately, the human condition is such that we, we do have both those who are actually evil and those who are good and trying to make way and, and the people sometimes caught in between. And those immigrants who are very anxious about their uh, how they get labeled, they don't want to be labeled undesirable. Yeah, are we, are we speaking about today, or are you talking about back back uh, then in the eighteen nineties? Yeah, I, well, one of the things one learns from this book is that uh, some of the very conditions and complaints about today, and and concerns about too many of a certain group coming, were were occurring back then because it was in the eighteen nineties that uh, uh, the tide of immigration changed. It had been mostly Germans and Irish until then. And by the way, that's who's primarily working at Ellis Island at this time. Um, and the newcomers from Italy in, in particular, but also other parts of Central and Eastern Europe. So you had a stigma being attached simply by uh, where you were from or what your name was, or maybe you were a little dark-haired and dark-complexioned compared to the fair-haired and fair-complexioned people who mostly populated America up until the 1890s. So you do have that self consciousness and you do have of course uh, the Ellis Island employees reflecting the prejudices and pressures in the larger society by looking more carefully and rejecting more commonly people from that part of the world and the key theme throughout the book the love story yes <laughs> the love story uh, interweaves throughout the book um, with the uh, events that are happening uh, both in American society itself and on Ellis Island. And so what you have is uh, both a, a progression of insight into the island and its events, some of them quite dramatic, uh, and at the same time uh, the, the two love interests are trying to find a way to happiness. A couple of great reviews. Uh, one says, Guardians of the Gate. Packs a one-two punch, a love story combined with the riveting but little-known story of the hospital at Ellis Island, a compelling novel that is sure to warm your heart. And another reviewer, a careful blend of fact and fiction, this novel sheds light on a pivotal period in American history. Give us some closing thoughts. Well, I I think what I'd like to say uh, in that way is, this is a book that will be fun to read, I think. I hope it's compelling. At least a few people have said that. Um, but in essence, I think uh, it was is one that will make you have a feeling of pride when you when you finish, when you see um, the essence of America in, in its immigrants and in people trying to make this place where they are first setting part of uh, foot in America, uh, a place that is um, positive, 
a place that at the same time protects society and a place in which people seek to realize their dreams. And it's the place where those dreams begin to start to come true. The title of the book, Guardians of the Gate, and the author is Vincent N. Perillo. Vince, tell us how to get your book. Oh, <laughs> one can get it almost anywhere. Uh, it, it, it's certainly available online through the various vendors, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's available both as an ebook and soft and hardcover. Uh, the publisher is iUniverse, and of course, it's available directly from them as well. Thanks for being with us, Vince. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Give and Take, A Roadmap to Understanding a Psychiatrist. And the author is Stephanie Mullaney. And Stephanie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. Well, this is going to be a great help for those who need to see a psychiatrist to help them understand what they're involved in, the process, uh, what to look for. Uh, and as you put it, the search for a mental health professional can be a daunting, intimidating, and frightening process. And so you're trying to help through your book, Give and Take, A Roadmap to Understanding. Uh, you're going to share guidance, advice, and tips on how prospective patients can engage in a healthy relationship with a doctor, ensuring a thorough evaluation and the formulation of a successful 
treatment plan. You've got a, a many decades as a psychiatrist here, a very seasoned, a veteran. Of, of Why did you feel the necessity to publish your book? As I've met with patients over the years, and especially the past five or ten years, uh, when time spent with each patient has become increasingly curtailed by cost containment measures, I realized that treatment to a good outcome is contingent on uh, good educational preparation for the patient. And uh, I was challenged to provide as much information as I could in order to give each person a necessary platform from which to decide whether to engage in treatment. And if the individual chose recommended treatment, he or she would then need adequate understanding to be able to helpfully interpret their responses to treatment and to be able to report these to enable me to continue treatment planning and to optimize the outcome. And this teamwork has made the difference between successful treatment or disappointing results in my experience. Also, I wanted to address the common interpretation of symptoms as failure of personal strength. And this, this is no more true with psychiatric illness than with endocrine or surgical disorders. Uh, it's vital for patients not to feel personally responsible for their symptoms for treatment to proceed effectively and for families and significant others to appreciate this so that healing and relationships can take place. Uh, this is often one of the biggest tolls I've learned of psychiatric illness is that uh, it affects relationships because often uh, the person's symptoms are interpreted as um, uh, people tend to personalize these symptoms with colleagues or friends or family members, particularly in the family. And also, uh, there's been profound change in psychiatry over the past 40 years since I began training. And the implications and ramifications of these changes have had a great impact on me over the years, and I think warrant public exploration. Now, your book, titled Give and Take, and thus this important uh, key uh, communications relationship between the doctor and the patient, uh, you say that Give and Take chronicles brief vignettes from the author's life experience. Now, help us understand what these brief vignettes are. Uh, these are examples uh, from my training um, or uh, from uh, situations with, with individuals during practice, although uh, no one is referred to specifically, uh, which give people, uh, I think, a context from which to make sense of some of the information that I'm trying to convey in, in the book. Um, uh, uh, perception is con uh, is definitely contextual, both on the part of the patient and the psychiatrist. And uh, I think, on the one hand, clinical wisdom very much depends on uh, the psychiatrist utilizing the pearls presented by the patient, which is the information that you need to, to be able to formulate diagnoses and treatment plans. And conversely, a patient must have information regarding what symptoms mean and how treatment works with a framework of reference that allows good personal decision-making and emphasizes the vital need for good patient feedback of his or her response to treatment. Now, you have a principle that you try to follow, uh, a principle that is to treat the patient as you would like to be treated. Absolutely. That has been my 
uh, overriding guiding principle from the time I started uh, my uh, practice uh, of psychiatry. Um, I was very challenged, um, and I might say my patients have been my best teachers. I really forget information that's been shared in a personal dialogue uh, by somebody who expresses human emotion and often suffering that's extended uh, in trust. And uh, that, that person wants to be certain that the doctor is going to receive the information with the intention to understand it and respond for the benefit of its bearer. Um, I might also say that attending people who have struggled with life's toll takers, whether they're neurophysiological changes such as cellular exhaustion or situational burdens, has provided me an awe-inspiring example of surviving or coping with suffering uh, and witnessing people coming to terms with life's testing has afforded me uh, some measure of courage in meeting my own life challenges. Um, I think it's maybe surprising at first glance that those who initially struggled against establishing a working partnership with me as a psychiatrist initially resisting treatment, but later invested themselves in treatment after reevaluating their circumstances in light of new information that we discussed were the people with whom the most meaningful relationships were uh, forged. And in retrospect, it really isn't surprising because those who are battle buddies and engage in a challenging mission with a unity of purpose develop a uniquely enduring uh, relationship. And I'm quite indebted to the courageous patient souls that I've worked with over the years, uh, and I have uh, great respect for their strength of character. Um, these are people who are sufficiently perceptive to recognize the appearance of their symptoms and to solve uh, problems that, as I alluded to before, not only may be interfering with their own optimal functioning, but also cause anxiety or burdens for those around them. And uh, I think someone who, who, I can't think of anybody I'd rather spend time with than someone who uh, uh, will do that, will take this on, take that responsibility on. What would you say are the most common hurdles, obstacles for patients' referral to a psychiatrist? I, I, I think um, th there are a number of them. First of all, it's the uh, sort of mysterious nature. Uh, people are not exposed to um, as commonly to psychiatric um, illness and treatments as they are to many of the other medical fields. And the other one is, uh, unfortunately, uh, people who have symptoms, um, as I describe in the book, that are the most common or associated with changes in uh, biochemistry in the neuron. Uh, these are people who um, may be very highly functioning uh, in uh, areas of professional responsibility, and these people will recoil in disbelief when symptoms of exhaustion um, appear, and they usually will gasp and protest and disbelief at the suggestion they could have a neuropsychiatric illness. Um, and if, if that's um, the question I hear the most when people come in and uh, they've been referred to see Dr. Milani, and then when they come in, they'll say, you're a who? <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, that's an appropriate question. And uh, I think it, yeah, why it's, am it's, I here? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, it's just, and if that uh, initial shock weren't enough of a burden, uh, then there's uh, the need to come to terms with all this strange information. And uh, I think we psychiatrists know who we are and we know what our background is and how we function but I think we often forget that the person we're meeting with is brand new and they may not understand all of that and how can you trust someone that you really don't know or or don't understand what they're about and so it's our responsibility to to be able to initiate and provide that kind of information not only um, point for point but we need to put it in context. Uh, and I give examples in my own life uh, with uh, relatives where treatments were uh, proposed to them and they listened to the side effects and said, no, thank you, because mm. some of the side effects were so scary. Right. And I think we, if, if you don't put it in context that there's, you know, um, maybe a very, very small, minuscule risk uh, in terms of prevalence, that the person may turn down a treatment that could be very helpful with, with, with actually minor risk. So are these so, side effects some of the uh, most common misconceptions about psychiatry? I think that that is generally very true because um, over the recent years, really starting with, I think, 2004, the Food and Drug Administration began requiring a black box warning on antidepressant medications, alerting alerting the public to the possibility of suicidality developing children or adolescents. And this is a very useful reminder to clinicians, but I think it confounds the clinical scenery for the exhausted symptom bearer because, um, you know, in my practice uh, over almost 35 years, I I have never had anyone develop that that problem. So, and I've practiced full time. So uh, it's very, very rare. So, but, but, you know, and then the other medications that we use for some very serious psychiatric illnesses with psychoses have some very serious side effects that need to be respected. Uh, and, the, and you will hear the often the announcer on the advertisement on television gleefully describe the benefits of these medicines and then end with these serious side effects and, and adding at the end, even cause death. I don't know why anyone would want to take one of these medicines, right. to be honest. Exactly. So, yes, yes. I, I think uh, that's why the relationship with somebody that will be fully forthcoming with them is so vital in psychiatry. Someone you trust. Exactly. And have reason to trust. So So how do you know you should see a psychiatrist? Or how do you know someone around you that you're watching needs to see a psychiatrist? Well, people, uh, nowadays there has been quite a good educational campaign, both initiated by the government and also by the pharmaceutical industry. And so many patients today recognize their own symptoms and will come in, self-refer and come in. Uh, Sometimes family members will notice it and point it out. Other times it will be a family doctor or their primary care or another physician who may uh, refer them. Uh, But often uh, the person will just not quite be themselves. They won't be functioning at their 
at their optimum, their best. They'll notice that they may be more fatigued or uh, they may not, their sleep pattern may change, their energy level may change, and these can be subtle things or they may be more impatient than they normally would be. Uh, and these are tip-offs that um, it's sort of like the computer. If the software changes, you're going to get different results, and so uh, we have to adjust, uh, reprogram the software, and it's one way of, uh, of, of describing this. What is the best preparation for an interview with a psychiatrist? Um, I, I think uh, they need to read my book. <laughs> <laughs> That's why that we're here. That's that was the purpose of my writing it, and I don't mean to be, you know, being cute here. I, I, honestly, um, I, I, the last uh, three, four years of my practicing, I kept thinking we have so little time to accomplish so much, and I would spend the first one to two visits trying to deliver as much information about historical perspective uh, as well as what I heard in the patients presenting symptoms and what we had available uh, if there was something, which there usually is, uh, to treat that successfully. And then you go, we go through side effects or possible side effects. And, how and then I emphasize how important it is uh, for them to, for the person to be able to give me feedback because without that, uh, I am just, I have nothing to, to work with or to go on. So um, it's very important for that person to have an understanding of how vital the information they give uh, is. Because treatment must be individualized for each patient. Absolutely. If there's anything medicine has taught me over the years, that is the cardinal message. Is we are all like a fingerprint. We are so very unique. And I tell people it doesn't matter how many thousands I might have seen, when that new person comes in to see me, I'm starting from scratch. Now, I have the benefit of experience, and I have seen patterns, and I catch on to those as time goes on with that person. But still, I have to, and I should, start from scratch with that person. I want to emphasize to everyone, give and take, uh, this book is not as a, like a textbook, but it's more like a conversation, right? Uh, with the exactly. with you, you know, yeah. having a, uh, like you're having it with a prospective patient. Exactly. And uh, I, I think that whole approach to patients is important. Uh, unfortunately, we as medical profession, uh, professionals learn as students to objectify our patients, their histories, pathology, symptoms, the, the whole professional encounter. We sit across from a patient. We even look at him or her through strange instruments that wonderfully magnify increasingly smaller parts of the patient. We have less and less time to accomplish this, leaving more and more face time to the physician extenders, and the patients become increasingly remote. And I, I, I think this is our greatest challenge as uh, clinicians today. And unless we can stand in the patient's moccasins to treat him or her as we would like to be treated, we'll be less effective in our best efforts. And so if we can communicate to patients before they come into the clinic, then it may be possible to sit side by side, so to speak, and truly accomplishing uh, the well-discussed clinical partnership uh, uh, that's been um, talked about so much in literature in the recent, uh, recent years. 
And this is immeasurably more rewarding for the clinician, not to mention for the patient whose care will be enhanced. And I think if enough would-be patients and clinicians work to consider meeting each other with more understanding of each other's role, roles, medical care would improve dramatically in quality. And that's the mission of my book, Give and Take. The title of the book, Give and Take, A Roadmap to Understanding a Psychiatrist, and the author is Stephanie Milani. Stephanie, give us uh, the details on how to get your book. Uh, the book is available at uh, iUniverse.com. Uh, it also can be found on my website, which is StephanieMilani.com. Uh, it's also available at Barnes & Nobles and Amazon.com. So there are many different uh, venues. Thank you, Stephanie, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for having me iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.